is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. So ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. I'm Ashton Cohen. I'm joined today by David Grasso. He is the entrepreneur and the CEO of Bold TV. And we're going to discuss a whole range of uh, economic issues present in the U.S. right now, what we should be doing to solve them, advice for everyone, particularly with respect to the millennials and Gen Z crowd, on navigating the current economic climate and what we should prepare for, what to expect in the future. So, David, thanks so much for being with me. Of course, Ashton. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Appreciate it. First, uh, could you give us a bit of background about yourself and Bull TV and the mission behind it? So my story is pretty straightforward. If someone's expecting some sort of Hollywood movie, you're not going to get it. I'm a journalist who needs a job. And as you know, in media, basically you work for one of the big conglomerates. You try to strike it out on your own like you're doing. And really, each side has its pros and cons. So I kind of found a middle ground, which was to really run a nonprofit that's dedicated to testing what works in media, reaching young people, educating them about entrepreneurship, and basically providing as close as possible to nonpartisan media that is really humanly possible for all of us. It's not easy because we all have our biases. It's more about recognizing our biases and trying to figure out you know, how we can provide balanced information to our viewers. So we try to teach people to practice common sense with their own pocketbook and really to vote with economic common sense in mind. And so let's talk about economic common sense for a second. Jack Dorsey started a, a bit of a controversy when he said that hyperinflation uh, is essentially coming. And it's interesting because this is somebody who has, as a CEO of Square, has some of the most valuable, insightful data on services provided, the cost at which they're increasing, you know, people get paid through Square, uh, people invest through the Cash App, um, they lend through Square. Uh, so there's somebody who has a very valuable data set in terms of being able to recognize uh, the the cost increase of certain services and goods and the important economic variables. It's him. So that, that sort of... Um, it took me by surprise a bit that he would say something that, that extreme. I mean, we've obviously seen this in all over the world, including Argentina, uh, obviously Venezuela, uh, multiple countries in Africa. What is your assessment of, of inflation right now? Do you think it's transitory, as, uh, as the White House says? Do you think that it is going to get worse in the uh, short to medium term? And how, how, do you, how, do you, how do you see it play out? Keeping in mind that you know forty percent of all the dollars in existence didn't exist more than a year and a half ago, so there's been massive increase in the M two money supply. What's your assessment on inflation? So I want to first dispel the myth that somehow Jack Dorsey has some inside information. First of all, the first person I ever interviewed on my podcast was Jim McKelvey, who is the co-founder of Square, and I can I've interviewed him multiple times. Jim is a really thoughtful guy. He's much closer to Square and really isn't actively involved. Mm -hmm. And of course, Jack Dorsey, the last time we checked in on him before this tweet, he was living in French Polynesia. So he's not really even active in running Twitter. So I really don't think he has the finger on the pulse of what's going on in the monetary world. But beyond that, yes, of course, there's a lot of inflation. And there always honestly has been inflation. We did something in the 90s where we doctored statistics to make inflation look very low. And it was a political solution, right? Again, when politics meets economics, politics tends to win. Well, unfortunately, that blew up in our face because we lived in an era of very low inflation, or at least the indicators that we had engineered to underestimate inflation were chronically showing low inflation or even scarier deflation. And the problem with deflation, as great as it sounds, is it's a very hard phenomenon 
to control. Falling prices sound great to the consumer, but if you go ask the Japanese government how deflation's going, it's not good. Mm -hmm. It's usually a big telltale sign that your economic civilization is collapsing. So it's better to have some inflation or low inflation instead of deflation. Now, fast forward to today, everything you're saying is completely true. 40% of the dollars in circulation did not exist before the pandemic. What this has caused is rising prices. But what the Fed is doing is they're trying to err on the side of inflation over deflation. If there was only a way they could fix this, well, yes, of course there is. You stop the stimulus, you raise interest rates. But raising interest rates would cause a series of very difficult decisions that we have to make as a society. One of them is the government is heavily indebted and already owes a lot of money and chronically runs a deficit. Higher interest rates means that our payments on existing debt are higher. And we have to actually consider balancing our checkbook in Washington, which is not very politically popular. Even moreover, consumers and companies are also heavily indebted. We have debt in every corner of society. And it's much easier just to let inflation run a little hot instead of making really grown-up decisions about what's going on. So that's where we are today. Regarding whether inflation is transitory or, you know, here to stay, I think what we're seeing right now isn't going to go away easily. I definitely don't see a situation of hyperinflation. Hyperinflation is, of course, when you have a thousand percent inflation, mm -hmm. you know, Venezuela style, pre-World War II Germany, you know, there's Zimbabwe. There's been several examples mm -hmm. in history. But I think it's a problem because it's been so long since we've had inflation, ask your parents, it was the 1970s, that we've kind of forgotten what it's like. And there are definitely pros and cons to this. One of the pros, debt deflation. So it becomes easier to pay your right. debts. Two, it kind of keeps the economy, you know, rolling. It's not necessarily all bad, but it also means everything's more expensive. Mm -hmm. And we have to remind folks, especially people in Washington, that a lot of people in, the, in American society already live paycheck to paycheck. So in an era of higher than normal inflation, not good news for the average American consumer. Right, absolutely. So you you don't think that you think it's a problem. You don't anticipate it being a, you know, say Argentina level problem uh, anytime soon. Where so Argentina's, I think it's like almost fifty percent a month. Yeah, Argentina has been doing what we've been doing for quite a lot longer. Mm -hmm. I was an exchange student in Argentina in two thousand five, back when the peso was three to one. Today, it's more than ten times that. Right, amount. right. So you know, Argentina's been doing this forever. We just started this. There are, of course, little spikes that are going to be a problem. And I think one of the problems right now, we're seeing a perfect storm in so many different areas, including supply chains. Oil prices are definitely going to be an inflationary problem in the short term. Mm -hmm. But of course, as you've seen in prior <laughs> iterations of this problem, oil prices go up, oil prices come down, we all move on. But in the meantime, it's very expensive and it affects the price of everything. So no, I don't see us you know, trudging toward an Argentina situation, mm -hmm. but definitely a lot of developing countries could find themselves in a financial pickle. They're in much more danger than we are because in eras like this where the printing press you know, keeps on going and going in the Eurozone in Japan and in the United States and in the rest of the developed world, a lot of that inflation affects developing economies. Mm -hmm. So you're going to see higher than normal inflation, even in places that really historically haven't had a lot of inflation. Absolutely. And I, I think the other the other issue with inflation is not only the, the um, increase, the marginal increase in certain goods uh, like steak and eggs and all that, uh, used cars, um, it does create, and especially, and this goes into the, the quantitative easing aspect as well, the monetary supply expanding, uh, insane levels of asset inflation, right? So as they spend more money and as the dollar devalues, the the things you see the most in are things like real estate, right? Where, you know, for example, we're both in LA, you know, Santa Barbara had an 84% increase appreciation in homes this last year, which is just insane. I mean, it, it's it's hard to wrap your mind around that, you know, uh, Miami, close to where you're from, uh, had, I think, like 25% increase. Um, and we're seeing double digit increases across the board. Uh, we're also obviously seeing this play out as well with with the stock market. Um, and so one one of the things that people point to is something like Bitcoin 
being the being the the way to at least preserve your wealth um independent of the uh the inflation's happening in the overall economy getting into something like bitcoin creating economic self sovereignty what do you think what's your view on both from a macro perspective and a personal finance perspective, um, maybe speaking about the crypto space generally and Bitcoin in particular. Well, first, I want to answer your question about what you said about asset inflation. And I think you can blame your closest boomer that's standing next to you at this moment. Absolutely. It's because yeah. they've run this economy into the ground. Mm -hmm. And the only way to bail everything out is to run the printing press and do quantitative easing. And unfortunately for us, it causes wild asset inflation. And, you know, I think we've conflated uh, aid during crises as an excuse to just produce wild amounts of asset inflation. I think, you know, while handing out unemployment like we did this time definitely created problems, it's a short-term problem, right? When you do quantitative easing and you cause this rush of asset inflation, you're creating a significant long-term mm -hmm. problem, especially when you're talking about real estate. And I think we haven't learned our lesson. This happened during 9-11, this happened in 2008, and this happened now during the pandemic. And I think we as millennials and Gen Z are living the sins of the past. And I think it's very unfair to us. And it's always talked about helping poor people, but really these bailout programs help the very top. And most of all, they help our parents the most who are already worth on net 10 times more than we are. So, and that's very damaging to our economic prospects. And I think it's something we need to talk about more. Now, as it pertains to crypto, three months ago, if you would have asked me, I would have given you this line. Crypto, I, I'm, I'm, I'm famous, Ashton, for being quoted in a lot of crypto magazines because I am a party of one. I am pro-crypto, but I do not own it, mm -hmm. which that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So I get called yeah. to ask for comments and whatnot. <laughs> crypto is very risky. Bitcoin is probably the least risky of all the cryptocurrencies, as is Ethereum and Litecoin. You know, there are mainstream cryptocurrencies that I think at this point in time should be part of a basket of investments that anyone who is, you know, has some cash sitting around can park their money. Should it be the number one stop to park your money? I don't think so. It's still very risky. Also, there's a lot of bad coins out there that probably won't exist in the long term. So I think it's very important to differentiate between mainstream coins mm -hmm. and then, you know, mm -hmm. what they call shit coins. And that's literally the technical term. So make sure you're not buying a shit coin. And moreover, you have to be careful as well that you're not conflating blockchain technology with cryptocurrency. Blockchain technology is a revolutionary way of basically organizing everything technologically. Yes, cryptocurrency is based on blockchain, but by investing in Bitcoin, you're not really betting on blockchain technology. Now, if you're investing in Ethereum, you are because Ethereum is the back end of a lot of other coins and the back end of a lot of other stuff. So you have to educate yourself around the space. I am not a big crypto investor because I don't really understand it yet. I understand that it is the future. I think that definitely there is a lot of money to be made. I think it's going mainstream and it's a runaway train that no one's going to be able to stop. But I urge people to practice restraint because in many ways it resembles the dot-com boom of the late 90s. Yeah, I, I would agree with that with the the crypto space in general. Uh, you know, there's like anything else, you know, 80-20, uh, the 80-20 principle. So the top 80% of the gains go to the top 20% of projects. It's true with everything. Uh, and, you know, I, investing in something like Shiba Inu coin is, is uh, probably not a not a good idea for anybody. Uh, unless they have a little bit of money they want, they just don't care about and they won't play with. Um, uh, with a, lo a lot of people uh, have money that the government gave right. to them or they started a business during the pandemic. Listen, it's hard to invest right now. Asset prices are through the mm -hmm. roof. And I understand why people are bullish about crypto. Real estate is expensive. Stocks are expensive. Bonds are expensive. Everything's expensive. So, And you have high inflation. So keeping cash on hand isn't good either. So Really, what big money people are doing right now is investing in startups. That's the best investment you can get right now is invest in startups, which is, of course, very, very risky. Typically, venture capitalists invest in a lot of startups with the anticipation that one or two will make it and that will cover the rest of the costs. So or the losses, rather. So 
I think it's a challenging environment. And I think crypto startups, as well as stocks, bonds, and real estate, all the boring stuff that we're tired of hearing about are an essential part of any investor's portfolio. Absolutely. Well, with respect to the uh, the startups, I'm invested in a, in a few startups myself, but the SEC rules basically pro- prohibit average people from being able to invest in private companies um, without you know being an accredited investor or something like that, which is so, so ridiculous. Uh, and I think it further exacerbates the the income inequality and the wealth inequality that we see is basically somebody can go to Vegas and put their entire life savings on red. Uh, but they they can't invest in you know SpaceX or something, right? I mean, they, they, even well, there is there is crowdfunding. Right. There are, you are absolutely right, Ashton. But there is crowdfunding. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you are really interested, if you have a thousand dollars and you want to invest it, there's Start Engine, WeFunder. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of websites that do this. Is it going to be the same startups that you know high net worth individuals and angels are investing in? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Maybe sometimes, but there is an opportunity for regular investors. And that's one of the last gifts economically of the Trump era Mm -hmm. is that, you know, crowdfunding, uh, the rules came down Mm -hmm. significantly. And I think it's a lot easier for startup entrepreneurs to raise money on these platforms. And it's a lot easier for the general public. But what you're saying is absolutely correct. This is not the same. This is not the same Mm -hmm. startups that, you know, Peter Thiel is investing in. This is. A different set of startups. And maybe there's a little bit of overlap, but what you're saying is absolutely Mm -hmm. true. Wealth gaps are a huge problem in our country. And if really we opened up, you know, the space for more general, uh, a general, you know, investment from everyone, I think it would make things better because that's really the biggest creator of wealth. Let's think about the way wealth is made these days. Salaries are not how people make wealth. Investments, sometimes. But really the big deal is when companies sell, go public, et cetera, that's when people make mm-hmm. fortunes that are legend. And that's really a big change in our economy. So even if you're out there making six figures or close to that, that's not big money. Mm-hmm. Big money is having a startup, right. having a successful exit, having a nest egg. And then guess what you do mm-hmm. with that money, Ashton? You start another one. It never stops. That's America and that's the American dream. And I believe that's the new iteration. Of the American mm-hmm. dream. Absolutely. The uh, question about about your, your investment philosophy. Why aren't you investing in something like Bitcoin? You know, I've seen, so I lived through the, I'm, I'm slightly older than you, Ashton. So I lived through the late nineties and I saw people get wrecked and I lived in Florida during the real estate recession mm-hmm. and I saw people get wrecked. So I think it's, it's put uh, something in me that's a lot more conservative than a lot of people who are maybe five years younger than me. Um, obviously Bitcoin has done well, but it does this, right? Yeah, and I feel like I'm so busy with my right. I'm so busy with my startups that I'd rather focus on that because I feel like that's a much uh, bigger creator of wealth. Also, you know, I just moved and I don't own my own home, mm-hmm. so I, I I sold my home in Florida and I'm working on buying one here. And I feel like that's the first thing you should do. That's my investment mm-hmm. philosophy: is own your own home, no matter what the market is doing, so they can't kick you out. So that's my current project. If I go ahead and buy my home and still have windfalls, I'd absolutely be willing to invest in Bitcoin. Makes sense. Yeah. I, I, now that you mentioned that, I just want to, I just want to touch on that for a second because I, so I grew up with like, I was like 16 when the 2008 crisis happened. My family was in real estate. So people went from making good incomes to not even getting cut in half to zero, literally, literally zero. You made several hundred thousand and the next couple of years you made zero. Um, so I, for, for me, and I think uh, obviously Bitcoin and crypto is predominant among the millennial crowd. Uh, I think I, I read a CNBC survey, that CNBC survey which said that uh, 50% of millennial millionaires, uh, the, the slight majority, had over 25% of their wealth in crypto. Uh, the reason why I makes sense. the reason why I naturally gravitated towards it was kind of a so similar experience to you, but I had sort of the opposite reaction, which was. Um, you saw the way the the banking institutions helped create this mess in conjunction with the government with you know giving out these um giving out loans to people who couldn't afford them and just engaging in highly reckless behavior with respect to the subprime mortgages and all that uh then they get bailed out and innocent people are are basically left to hang dry um and then on top of that 
growing up in a uh, in the sort of beginnings of the cancel culture where uh, you can just be you know kicked out of multiple institutions, not only tech censorship, but now we're seeing some sort of uh, financial censorship as well. We see in China, it's coming here to a certain extent. We've already seen even like MasterCard and Visa um, prohibits uh, transactions to certain websites. Spotify did the same thing. Uh, so it, it just naturally made sense. Like, oh my God, here's here's something, and particularly with respect to Bitcoin, that literally nobody can take. It's, it's an unbelievable innovation. I mean, if you keep it in a cold storage wallet, the government can't take it. No human being can seal it from you. Uh, all you need is your 24-word password, and you can be walking around with a trillion dollars uh, that you have access to that nobody can touch. And I just thought that was such a, a compelling reason to, to look into it and, and eventually, uh, you know, I'd be investing in it quite heavily. But um, so that was that was sort of that was sort of my way. I want to explore. I want to explore the. Everything you're saying reflects my exact thoughts in terms of ideology, in terms of government-free ways of you know storing wealth. I think most people, regardless of their political orientation, want other people's hands off their mm -hmm. wallets. So on that page, we are the same. Now, I have significant concerns. You were talking about concentration of wealth. Bitcoin is controlled by a very small crowd even now. And I worry that that concentration, right, mm -hmm. is a big problem. There's a concentration of miners and there's a concentration of Bitcoin holders. Mm -hmm. And I believe it makes the system weak and it makes the system subject to a lot of, you know, volatility, we'll call it nicely. It goes up and down. It is not a stable asset. And that really is what turns me off as an individual investor. That's a stable. Yeah, it's still a nascent field. And so, you know. Uh, until it gets spread out more to more towards more people, and some of that concentration will inevitably decrease. But but I I completely understand uh, your point of view there. With respect to the millennials, uh, we we touched on this just a second ago. This is basically the most indebted generation in history, largely because I think this is probably the one bipartisan thing that I think everybody is probably born after the 1980s or. 80s and after can agree on, which is that these problems were created by a, uh, you know, the boomers, uh, you know, they really created a huge mess. Uh, and then leading into the issues with student loan debt, this is a $2 trillion problem. This is obviously a large reason for the uh, millennials being so indebted. What do you, what's your diagnosis of, all right, let's start with student loans, for example. All right, because this is a, a huge problem. What do you think gets done about that um, politically? And what do you what do you think? Let's say we we can even do something about that, whatever the solution is. I'm curious to see what your thoughts are on solution. And then what can we do to make sure that we, we're not in this mess again, assuming it gets solved to begin with? And this is the problem. You already kind of hinted at the problem behind student loans is that we tend to talk about forgiveness. And I think forgiveness shouldn't be off the table, right? But I don't think we should lead with that conversation mm -hmm. because there's an enormous moral hazard. Right. And I'm not saying people deserve to be in debt. I'll give you a very clean cut example. We talk about forgiveness, but we never talk about the really high interest rates that student mm -hmm. loans carry. Maybe we should start right. there, bringing down those interest rates to make the payments more manageable so that everyone wins, right? People sign for that debt. They should be able to pay them, but they shouldn't be paying. Well, they get the same interest rate no as the big banks, right? <laughs> yeah. And all these student loan servicers, yeah. which ultimately the federal government is making a lot of money off of student loans. So before we hop to, you know, forgiving 50,000, how about we make it interest free mm -hmm. or low interest rate or even market interest rates for a lot of people? who really can't keep up on paying down their principles because they're inundated with student debt. Yeah, I mean, you're a lawyer, Ashton, all your friends, you know, we're paying $1,000 mm -hmm. a month in interest. And I think that's unfair to the legal, medical, dental, and all the rest of the graduate professions, because we all need you guys be to make this country a go. Now, healthcare and higher education are really similar, in the sense that we always talk about these problems, like, Oh, why don't I have coverage? Oh, you need student debt forgiveness. What we have to focus on is the cost of care in healthcare and the cost of attendance in higher education. Why does it cost so much money to attend universities? And why isn't anyone holding them accountable? Here, you know, right here, I live across the street from UCLA, public university, low tuition, 
But UCLA is run like a business. And let me tell you, the public universities aren't really the bad ones. You go down the street to the University of Southern mm -hmm. California, there's mm -hmm. a business, right? These private universities using their nonprofit status have still fully monetized every single way to shake down their mm -hmm. students. And then they have the gall to ask you to donate once you right, graduate. Right. So I really think if we're going to talk about student loans, we have to talk about these institutions of higher learning, which is a double whammy, right? They're charging us a fortune, right? And while you're on campus, right, they're, they're, it's just a full con job, whether it's food, books, merchandise, housing, everything. It's a money shakedown. And in the end, a lot of the stuff that we learn in school doesn't really help mm -hmm. you in the workplace. So, because, you know, in the end, and there are some majors that are fine, you know, if the end, if they prepared us and you made the money, it would be fine. But I think the Wall Street Journal has done a fantastic job of kind of plotting what your return on investment is for different degrees across the country. And that's been a bombshell. And, you know, one of the worst ones has been the arts programs at Columbia University. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my husband went to Columbia University, but he studied public health. So he's going to make money, right? But if you went to Columbia University and studied film, which I met the guy who was on the cover at a film festival recently, it's going to be a really tough mm -hmm. hole to climb out of. So I think we need a conversation of number one, holding institutions accountable. And number two, going to college besides buying a house is the most important consumer decision you'll ever make in your life. And we really, in our era, Ashton, they always were like, how do you feel? How do you like the mm -hmm. campus? Mm -hmm. Does it have a good yeah. vibe? No, this is a, this right. is like a lazy river. A yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. This is like buying yeah. a car. Is it reliable? Is it going to get you to point it from point A to point B? Uh, higher education should be studied in terms of its return on investment. If I spend $100,000, if I take four years of not working, because people forget you have to pay tuition, support yourself, and also you're not working, right? You have to figure out whether it's a good return on your investment, especially if you're borrowing. And there are many alternatives mm -hmm. to not going to college. And also there's so many areas that have a desperate need that there are so many areas where you can make money, where you can pay off your debt and where student loans are very appropriate. Unfortunately, there are millions of people in programs that will never right. pay off right now. And the student debt bomb seems to get worse and worse and worse. And it's a weapon of economic mm -hmm. mass destruction because the more you indebt our generation, the less houses we buy, the less right. children we have, the less taxes we pay, the less businesses exactly. we start. And it's a major, mm -hmm. major problem for all of us. And really the seeds were sown before we were born by the lovely baby boomer generation, which really pursued these policies with reckless abandon and really don't understand the economic damage that they're doing to America. Absolutely. I, th I think you articulate it so well. I remember when I was in high school and my uh, PE teacher said, you know, all these morons want everybody to go to college. Like, what's going to be the point of a college degree if everybody goes to college? So so that's that's kind of a part of it as well is like people didn't realize that there were other options. We we, we never even discussed, I mean, especially growing up in a place like uh, L.A. or Southern California, these big metropolitan cities, um, other careers where you don't even need a, a college education. And it's it's worth noting as well, this is largely an American phenomenon. Um the European countries, for example, a place like Germany or Switzerland, they have a very strong apprenticeship programs um, and they make, you know, they're, they're synonymous for making some of the most high quality goods in the world. And there are so many jobs, even today, people go to college and then they end up in a job that had nothing to do with what they studied and what they studied had no relation, uh, no improvement into their, in terms of their outcome or their ability to grasp the information or the, the skills needed. Uh, so, so that's, and again, this is, this was, like you said, a, a culture, a philosophy that the baby boomers sort of, uh, really brought in that everyone has to go to college, that it's, it's the only way. I no, love college, Ashton. I, I love college. But is it for everyone, I right? It, but no. And, and, and there's a lot of competition mm -hmm. in the space. So I went to a liberal arts school. It was expensive. I got the best damn education. I loved it. But guess what? I'm privileged. Okay. If, 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 if my parents hadn't been able to pay for it, I would have gone to public mm -hmm. school. And in Florida, where I grew up, we have a lovely system that is very mm -hmm. affordable, very high quality, just like here in California. I think the system here in California is somewhat affordable and very high quality. 
make informed choices before you mm -hmm. sign up for that fancy private school, especially if you can't pay. For right. It. And it's hard to make those choices too when you're 18. I mean, you don't even think about uh, the money you have to pay on the back end. You, like we said, we don't even know what the interest rate is, love. I mean, uh, I'd, I'd be curious to see how many people actually understood what interest rate really means. Um, and, and I, th I think like they've done studies on this with, in terms of credit card debt. And it's like you know, the vast majority of, of kids, 18, 19, 20, don't realize what the, the interest rate they're signing up for when they have to pay off this, this credit card. So I'm sure, so, you know, you, you apply that to school as well. And especially because everyone is telling you that this is the right thing to do. I, I saw a tweet by, uh, someone posted about Andrew Yang quote, and he was saying, you know, if if you you're sort of lost out there in the world, and uh, you know you take on a hundred thousand dollars debt to go into law school, uh, that's considered like a like a smart move to do. But we don't encourage you know a hundred thousand dollars to go to someone who's trying to like you know build a business or something like that. You know, so we're creating those government incentives. I thought that was interesting because I, I think that's very much the case. Is and I saw that in law school where like there there were. Quite a few people who were there. Can I, can I take a moment to bash lawyers? Because that's my <laughs> no, favorite. Please, please and, and boomers and lawyers. I know you're a lawyer. <laughs> no, please do. But I, I feel like if you really – lawyers are needed. We mm -hmm. all need lawyers. Absolutely. I talk to my lawyer all the time. I have a great relationship. My best friend's a lawyer. He's in-house counsel for you know a very big company. You know, uh, I have another friend who's – a very good friend who's in-house counsel at the IRS. You all do important work, and I'm happy. But let's face it. Lawyers can't really run a country. Mm -hmm. If you let lawyers run this country, it would come to a grinding halt. It's just, it just is the nature of the mm -hmm. beast. And really, if you look at countries that have a higher per capita number of lawyers, they tend to be like Argentina. Mm -hmm. Psychologists and lawyers are a big, a big red flag that your 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 country is fading into obscurity. So I would really encourage people not to be doctors or lawyers. You know, doctors are the same thing. They're, of course we need doctors. My whole, I'm the only non-doctor in my family. Everyone's a doctor. But, and my uncle here out in, um, at, right outside of LA, he's a doctor as well. And his wife is a nurse practitioner. It's, but most of us are not meant to be doctors mm -hmm. or lawyers. We're just mm -hmm. not. And I face that. I'm a child of immigrants from Cuba. Yeah. And, you know. Tell that to a Jewish family. <laughs> yeah. All these ethnic, yeah, yeah. all these ethnic families. Basically, you get a little, a little form, and it's like, what would you like yeah. to be, a doctor or a right. lawyer? And perhaps if you shame the family and a yeah, yeah. So <laughs> you know, and then after that, it's just like journalist and even entrepreneur. I mean, once you leave the ethnic enclave where your forebearers set up originally and created a business because they might have been discriminated mm -hmm. against or because they didn't speak the language well once you get past that stage you're expected to be a doctor lawyer or a very successful entrepreneur mm -hmm. and i really think we need to lean more on the entrepreneurship Absolutely. there's so much more money to be made the gold rush in law and medicine is over folks so if you're doing it for the money just don't do it and also the debt that you mm -hmm. have to accumulate and the years that go by to go into those professions and ashton you can answer this question i can turn the tables here how many of your friends are happy in the legal profession? Yeah, it would be under – it's probably be under 30%. That's mm -hmm. a pretty low yeah. number. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. and um, the other issue is you know, so much, uh, so much talent, otherwise talented people are being sort of diverted into this field um, where if, if, if the culture wasn't as such, you know, they – and we, we, we did encourage more entrepreneurship and not having to go to college as the be all end all, you know, love the talented people who go into these fields, which aren't producing anywhere near the value to society <laughs> that they should be doing. Um, they would be starting businesses and creating much more value um, in society overall. Lawyers are smart. Yeah. Can you imagine, Ashton, if it, all your friends who were in the law? We're, we're starting businesses. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they'd probably kill yeah. us. They're, they're smart people. If they if they forget their legal education and mm -hmm. understand that just arguing your way out of a problem isn't a real solution, you know. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it's one of those things that I, I was on the track to go to law school. Unfortunately, I bowed out. But all my friends did. And, you know, they make good money. They have a decent career. They're respected, you know, bright legal minds. But I wouldn't trade what I did mm -hmm. for what they did. And I feel like a lot of people need to understand that 
when you're an undergrad, and this happens to a lot of high performers who are an undergrad, you're expected to go to grad mm -hmm. school. And that's fine, mm -hmm. right? But think outside of medicine and law. There's a lot of right. fields out there more bright minds. Absolutely, and you know, I think Musk actually mentioned this as well. He said so much of our talent is being lost to you know working at a hedge fund or, or going into law school, uh, and working for these giant law corporations. It's true, because these are very talented people who, who could be serving other purposes. Um, one, one, and I think it's also, also worth mentioning the. I don't know if you saw the chart, but. It's been going around. I saw Jason Calacanis had, a, had it up as well, where it shows sort of the, the inflation rate of different things. So, you know, obviously electronics and you know, TV, all that sure. stuff going way down, right? And then education costs, probably, I think they're averaging something like 15-20% over the last 20 years. Um, and is our education getting any better? No, it's not. A lot of this money is going to, towards hiring uh, administrators, not even educators, right? Like so much of the of the college uh, tuition is going to paying administrators who by their nature need to find shit to do in order to justify their existence to get these big paychecks, uh, which is a huge, again, this is like, it's worth knowing. It's like, this is largely an American problem, which is, which is, I think pisses me off most about it. Uh, because if we have so many of our talented people in debt who then can't leave uh, their jobs, you know, I mean, I, I was privileged in, in the respect that I knew how to invest. So, I wasn't. I didn't have to stick around the big law firm or do anything like that. I can sort of do something I want to do. Um, but everyone else is kind of trapped because, like you, you know, you have hundred grand, two hundred grand of debt, um, and and that's largely because of how much education costs have gone up. And if all, all our smart, young, bright people uh, are basically slaves to their jobs, paying off these massive debts. That they accumulated, and you know, the, some of the European countries and the Chinese and some of the Asian countries, their bright young stars don't have this shackles around their legs, and now they can start businesses and they can be entrepreneurs and they could do what they want to do. Um, it, it's just not a good look long term. Uh, it, it's not promising for us. I, I don't know if you have a if you've if you've sort of analyzed, I, I think that. it's really important. And I've interviewed Jason Calacanakis. Mm -hmm. He's 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 the nicest guy. He's a, a killer entrepreneur. So much good insight. I think we have to start thinking about everything on a monthly basis. And when you take out student loans, it's just eating into right. your right. It's going into basis, a black hole, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to take. Yeah, yeah, you just let's say you're a professional in one of these high flying cities, and you're killing it, and you're making ten grand a month, right? You're killing it. You're bringing home 10 mm -hmm. grand a month after mm -hmm. taxes. Well, if you start doing the math, if you have student loans, have to pay rent in New York, LA, mm -hmm. DC, Chicago, San Francisco, you don't have a lot right. of money left when you're done. Mm -hmm. And that might, you know, puzzle our, our middle America folks, but you have no mm -hmm. idea how expensive it is to live in these right. markets. So when you're thinking about continuing your education, you have to think about that, that monthly budget. Mm -hmm. What do jobs pay in my industry? Where am I going to live? If I live in California, I got to lop 10% off the top of my take-home pay on top of federal taxes because, you know, we have, uh, you know, <laughs> a lot going on mm -hmm. here in California that needs to be funded with our money, right? If I'm working in Florida, obviously my take-home pay is going to be higher as well as Texas. So you have to really think about that. Fast forward 10 years and come up with your ideal budget. Is it going to work? Are you going to be able to own a home? Are you going to be able to live in a high cost market? Are you going to be one of these people that says, you know what? I like middle America. I'm going to live in Indiana. Mm -hmm. My job is remote. I'm going to be able to make it work. You have to envision that perfect life and your ideal monthly budget. I think far too many people go in with stars in their eyes, go to these private schools, and then they're like, well, I want to live mm -hmm. in LA. Okay, mm -hmm. well, a house costs a million dollars. You have to pay 10% of your budget to you know, our dumpster fire government. And you have to uh, pay off your loans, mm -hmm. which carry a really hot interest rate. Sales tax and property tax. percent for mm -hmm. some of them. So you got to really think that out. So never mind, you know, the stars in your eyes. What is a realistic goal? And if you're going into a, a field that has a lot of demand, you're going to find a job and you're going to make even more money than you think in your ideal budget. And I think really envisioning that future budget and really walk yourself through theoretical situations. If I were killing it, where would I live? What would I do? What would my consumer habits be like? Do I want dogs, kids, house? Am I an urban dweller? Do I never want to get married? All of that comes together. Mm -hmm. 
So I think it's really important when you're making education decision, job decisions, geographical decisions, investment decisions, to think about your ideal lifestyle and what you envision it to be. All right, absolutely. It's not easy. Um, even somebody making, you know, a couple making a quarter million a year or a couple hundred thousand a year, uh, you know, sounds like a lot. But then, as you said, you know, when you live in these big cities uh, and you have these debts to pay off and these taxes to pay off, uh, you know, it's, it's very easy to see how they don't have much savings left. Well, I got really mad at one of my content creators because he came out and said, oh, you know, if you make, you know, whatever, above 250, you know, like it's a good problem to have that you're paying taxes. I don't think people understand mm -hmm. how expensive it is to mm -hmm. live in a place like New York. I lived there for five years and how everything is different. Right. You know, the equivalent of 100,000 in New York is 60,000 mm -hmm. Dallas. And that's an old statistic, right. but just so you have an idea, these are radically mm -hmm. different places. And I think you shouldn't assume taxing the rich is going after the right people. Right. So we have a problem in this country. The difference between the guy who makes, or the gal who makes $100,000 a year and the general population is definitely very wide. But what's even wider is the, the space between the, the dude that makes a hundred grand and the dude that doesn't make any money, but, you know, cashes out and makes, you know, 10, a hundred million mm -hmm. a year. Right. And then the space between them and the top 1000 wealthiest people in this country is even mm -hmm. greater. So there are different levels to wealth. And I think we have to be careful, you know, tax the rich is definitely something that's very popular that you hear all the time, but politicians tend to target entrepreneurs, people who create real value in the economy because they're taxable. They don't have these fancy firms. They can't hide money in the Caymans. They don't have, <laughs> they don't have ways to evade right, tax. Exactly. So I think we have to be really, really careful because already when you look at the doctors, lawyers, and entrepreneurs of the world, they're the most taxed people mm -hmm. on earth as a percentage mm -hmm. of their income. So yes, we're upside down on our budget. We need to get spending under control. We probably need higher taxes on some people, but be careful with the creative class because they create the most jobs and they're going to create the future taxpayers of tomorrow. So I urge everyone to practice restraint with this hashtag tax the rich stuff. Absolutely. And who's, who's the rich? It's always somebody who's a little bit richer than me, right? You know, someone brought it up to uh, always, yeah, always. AOC. It's, it's not, like, you make 180,000. Right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's the guys who make like 500,000, you know, up until then it's, you know, it's always one step above you is, is, uh, is the rich. Uh, <laughs> and, and I love staring. I do a lot of TV and I love staring at the panel when they're talking tax the rich, tax the rich. And I always go time yeah. out. You realize who the rich are. It's everyone you're seeing right, right. right now. It's you and you and you and you, and they all freeze. Mm -hmm. and they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, where are you today? Washington. Where are you today? New York. Well, you're on TV. You're, you're in a snappy suit. Mm -hmm. You're the rich. Mm -hmm. They're coming for you. Right, right. And it's even more insidious when you think about the uh, – I'm sure you saw that uh, Yellen was – insinuating that they would try to uh, go after unrealized capital gains for for whoever they define as rich and just as we saw with uh you know people don't realize this either the the federal income tax was once illegal they had to pass a constitutional amendment and it was premised on the fact that only the super rich the equivalent of people who make i think something like 15 million dollars in today's money uh would would pay you know like six percent or something like that very small margins uh, and obviously, that's that's no longer the case. We all pay 20, 30, 40%. The high-priced employees, as we were discussing, the doctors and lawyers who get basically who get their payment in the worst, the, the least tax efficient way, being a high high price employee is the worst thing for taxes, right? So if you get 300,000 a year, you're screwed, <laughs> yeah, right? Where, whereas a real estate developer can make millions a year and he's going to pay a, a, a much less tax rate than you. People who have their own businesses will be able to get away with certain deductions of things you can't get away with. Um, well, yeah. that unrealized gains, Ashton, no. let's not even project politics on this. I made a video about this yesterday. It doesn't work. Okay, so whatever you think, even if you're a Bernie bro, you know, attending the rally, it doesn't work. And it's been tried in so many different countries, right? Mm -hmm. Because the problem that we have is that the ultra wealthy don't make money. Mm -hmm. They don't. What they do is they have a bunch of unrealized gains. They go to a bank and they say, hey, can I borrow against these unrealized gains? And the bank goes, of course, gives them a very conservative loan. They pay less than 1%. They use that money. They deduct the interest and then they just die. Mm -hmm. So it's just make so they, they they buy a bunch of stuff 
they borrow against it, and then they die. So the alternative to this is taxing, you know, their stock, which is not being sold. So it's unrealized gains. How do you value art? Mm -hmm. And how do you value a bunch of stocks at any given mm -hmm. moment? And if you tax everyone at the same time, aren't you going to force the sale of some of those assets? So you're going to create market volatility. Right. Most studies show wealth taxes don't work. So good luck, Washington, with that proposal. No matter what you think, even if you're for soaking the rich, I'm not even, I'm not even, you know, going into that territory. It just doesn't mm -hmm. work. Yeah, I mean the the the. Um... European nations like France and uh, the ones who are most in favor, I think Spain as well, uh, the ones who are most in favor of social programs and, uh, you know, have that sort of mentality of, of tax rich, they abandoned the wealth tax as well because it just doesn't work. You can't. It doesn't work. Yeah. But France is the, the, the latest example mm -hmm. in just a string of countries where it's just like they tried. And, you know, France has been doing a lot of this. They did a 75% top tax rate. Now, I remember I was in France when it right. happened, and I have one of my friends who's a very fancy French lady. And she, I go, oh, so how's your father? And she goes, oh, he's living in Belgium. Mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, he just he went right over the border. So Belgium, Monaco, it's one yep. of those things that like love options. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, I think we're dealing in a globalized economy, and we have to have competitive tax rates. We have both a definite revenue problem. We're not collecting taxes efficiently, but we also have a massive spending problem. So if we're going to be honest about our federal government, we have to talk about both sides, which we have one party talking about one thing and another party talking about it the other. In terms of getting back to sort of the problems that, that young people face with, with the economic environment that they're inher inheriting, um, particularly, I mean, we have to have a little bit of sympathy here as well, because like, you know, the same... As these people sort of the millennials, uh, so 1985 is the first year. So as they're reaching their working years, you have 2008, and then you have coronavirus lockdowns that shut everything down for a couple of years. And you had two once in a lifetime events happen in the span of 12 years. Um, as people are entering the workforce and trying to, you know, basically make a life for themselves, what do you think? we need to do from either the, the biggest changes, the biggest things that we can do from either cultural or, or policy-based perspective um, to change direction, to, to create a more economic, economically prosperous environment for the future generations. Obviously we, another issue is automation and how, how that resolves itself is yet to be yet to be seen. Um, what, what are some of the things you're most passionate about or that you've, you've, you feel most strongly about in terms of helping the the younger generations uh, economically prosper and, and have the sort of lifestyle that you know the boomers had when they were able to afford you know uh, a single family home and a white picket fence in their mid to late twenties and start families. <laughs> well, you know, uh, and you can throw in nine eleven. These are called mm -hmm. black swan events, of course. You most swans are white, so you rarely see a black swan. So it's supposed to be a rarity, right? right. Well, it's happened three mm -hmm. times to us. And basically, you know, I was 16 when 9-11 happened. So, you know, that affected my life as well. And, you know, the sad part is we're probably not done with these black swan events because we have such a backlog of just bad things mm -hmm. happening. You know, now we have a climate slash natural disaster problem, right. whatever way you want to interpret that. But it's a problem here in California. I think what we have to do, I think the easiest way to do it is right now the retirement home is running our government and our corporations. And I would just like to see younger people. And it doesn't have to be millennials. It could be Gen Xers, you know, people my aunt and uncle's age. You know, I think they're more attuned to present day norms. I think we live in a world where boomers did what they could. They definitely, a lot of them did well um, for themselves, but they've left a lot of problems that have gone unsolved for so mm -hmm. long and they've kicked the can down the road for so long that it's time for fresh ideas and fresh leadership. So I think the easiest thing that we could do and it's going to start happening naturally because they're reaching the end of their productive working lives, is pass the baton to the next generation. It's not just you hear a lot about millennial problems. Gen X has had a real mm -hmm. tough time, and Gen X is, you know, the 1970s kids. And, you know, I think it's time for them to lead and for us to lead. And really, Gen Z coming up behind us has a lot of fresh ideas that we don't even have on our, on our mind as millennials. So I think it's time for fresh ideas. When I interview people for a living, I talk to people all the time, and I've interviewed a lot of famous baby boomers. 
And when I press them about solutions, they're very light on answers. Mm-hmm. And I feel like they're, they're, they're at the point where that mentality, the tried and true formula of what worked in the past, it's really apparent that it's not working anymore. And that goes for real estate, healthcare, higher education, international affairs, corporate, you name it. Just think for a second about all the companies that are doing well, right? Because the private sector, you know, they only have the profit motive. So it's, and customers can tell you which ones are doing the best. The ones that are led by Gen Xers tend to do better. Look at Amazon, Mm -hmm. look at Tesla and SpaceX. You know, these are entrepreneurs who are thinking outside of the box and trying to solve problems. And I think our number one problem is that our government has been taken hostage by people who probably should be laying down in a beach chair in Palm Beach at this Mm -hmm. point, you know, Mm -hmm. down the street from former President Trump. And instead, they're occupying the highest levels of Washington. And they're good Mm -hmm. people. These are, I'm talking about my parents and their crowd. They're very nice people. But their, their worldview, the way they look at problems, and the way the, the way they analyze information is outdated. Mm-hmm. And I think it's time for fresh blood. I think past generations have had a moment to shine. I'm almost 40 years old, Ashton. I have not been able to make one meaningful decision that affects the world because literally the generation, my parents' generation, mm-hmm. is holding on to power with such a death grip that it's really hard to get a word in with them. So I think if you want to make the world a better place, promote people in your in your world, and especially for the boomers listening, let young people take charge. Mm-hmm. We think differently, we have different solutions, and at least give us a chance to mess it up, even if we do mess mm-hmm. it up. Yeah, I mean, uh, go, going off on, on the wide gap between uh, the the view of things coming from the boomer generation. I, I, actually, our president isn't even a uh, – he's not even a boomer. He's um, born before 1945. I forgot what generation that is, which is insane to think about. As as is, silent. Well, silent. The, are they the silent generation? That's still, yeah. So, I mean <laughs> – They're the silent generation. You have the greatest generation. Yeah. Si- greatest generation was the one who fought World War II right. and whatnot. Right. That's, That's pre-1930. Right. Mm-hmm. Then, then you have the silent generation, 1930 to you know, mid-1940s. Right. And then post-World War right. II, you have, um, you know, President Trump is right yeah, there on, yeah, the, on he's, the cusp. Yeah. And then you he's have, 45, so he's technically a boomer, which yeah. is the uh, same as the... And then you have baby boomers, Gen X, right. Gen Y, which is millennials, and then Gen Z. And if you're curious for the next one, it's called Generation Alpha. We started oh, we're sorry, over, okay. yeah. The kids now are called Generation right, Alpha. Right, okay. Yeah. So let's... let's Let's think about it for a second. The president of the United States is not even a baby boomer, and he's the most powerful man in the world. Uh, the the Speaker of the House is older than him. Nancy Pelosi is like eighty two, I think. She's not even a baby boomer either. So I mean, you know, I mean, can you imagine trying to like explain Ethereum to these people? You know, like because crypto regulations are are you know a a hot topic right now. And like, can you imagine trying to explain like, uh, you know, smart contracts and blockchains to somebody like like President Biden, you know? And so these are the people that we have to rely on to to legislate and make economic policy and and regulations. Uh, it's it's just it's a it's a it's laughable and it's sad. Um, so and and never mind that. Let's talk about the elephant in the room, Ashton. They have trillion dollar deficits right, every right. year at this point, whether it's a Republican yep, or a Democrat true. administration. Mm-hmm. So you can talk about all the BS in the world, whether you're virtue signaling on the left or the right, like you are creating a debt bomb mm-hmm. that we will be alive to deal with. And that to me is clearly unacceptable and signals of their just the ineptitude of the baby boomer political class. Absolutely. And not to mention all the entitlements that we're going to have to deal with trillions and trillions of dollars of entitlements. No answer for that. No even discussion on that. And that's another ticking time. And that's really perverse mm-hmm. because the generation in front of us is worth 10 times what we are, mm-hmm. but then they take money out of our checks to transfer it to them. I mean, like, who came up mm-hmm. with this system? It's the most economically inefficient system on earth. And don't ever talk about social security to baby boomers. They earned mm-hmm. it, and mm-hmm. they're going to tell you that they earned it. And the funny thing is, many baby boomers actually need social security, but many of them don't. So I, I, would, I would love to see a system where it was actually fair, giving people who need the money money, and people who don't need the money don't need it. Healthcare is another big one. You know, Medicare mm-hmm. is such a big expense. Do seniors need healthcare? Of course. I'm not advocating cutting that. 
at all, in fact. I think that's actually a system that actually works, Medicare. But we at least have to talk about the cost. Mm -hmm. And that's something, and it's direct intergenerational theft is what it is. Absolutely. It comes out of our check. Go take... Go take a clear look at your paycheck and see where your money's mm-hmm. going, and it's shocking. Right. I mean, can you make any plausible case for Social Security being there when millennials reach retirement age? <laughs> we started this with yeah, inflation. Yeah. That's the it's, same it's, thing that's going to happen to us. Of course, we're going to get Social Security action, yeah. but it's not going to be enough to sustain yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What What are you most hopeful about in terms of um, things that you see right now that that give you that give you faith, um, that give you optimism about you know our future, our, our particularly in the in, in the economic sense. You know, I mean, for for me, it would be. I know you're not as much as a a crypto bull as me, but I, I think that the unlocking of a notion of economic self sovereignty, I think, is going to have so many second order effects um, that. You know, it's not going to solve every problem, of course not, but it's going to solve a lot of problems, I think. Um, and but then again, I am afraid of automation a bit. I am afraid of of artificial intelligence a bit, uh, a lot actually. Uh, it, what what do you see, sort of as as promising signs, particularly in the United States, if anything? I think you're dancing around it as you're saying it. You shouldn't be afraid of AI and automation. Listen, there's a lot of BS jobs out there right now. They need to go away. And there's nowhere in the world that's better prepared for the technological transformation than the United States. You know, despite the shortcomings of our system, this is a stable country. It is a democracy. We have high levels of economic freedom and technology will destroy jobs, but it will also create a lot of jobs. And I think when you look at things like climate adaptation, that just spells dollar Mm -hmm. signs for me. I don't see that as an economic problem. There's a lot of money in that. Uh, Same thing with crypto, same thing with artificial intelligence. This is going to create millions and millions of jobs. And I think the future is actually very bright. The problem we have right now is we have a class that's stuck in the past. The day we stop, we shed the sins of the past and move on, there is so much potential in this country to improve efficiency, to improve quality of life, and to really supercharge productivity. And I think that's a good thing. I'm not afraid of it. I think it will be good for society. And I think that life will be a lot better. And let's face it, despite the problems that we faced as millennials, would you rather be alive at any other time? No. This little thing in my hand, right, does Mm -hmm. everything. Uh, I have unprecedented access to information. I'm able to talk to people like you. And really, the cost of that is coming down. And that's really the good news. A lot of the good news comes out of the private sector for the future. And really... People have, who have this idea that America is a declining economic power are foolish. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, this is, we are best prepared for the technological transformation. And that's the good news. The good news is that the second we're done with this old way of thinking, you know, this concept of institutions and money and, and the way things are run right now, once we move past that, I think the future is very bright. Yeah, I agree. I think I think. Um, I think- Another thing that uh, that's worth mentioning is the incredible innovation with biotech, with um, innovation in the healthcare space and medicine. I mean, we uh, I I agree that I wouldn't I would not change being born this generation for any prior generation for sure. I mean, the the amount of opportunities I think are the amount of challenges are, are immense, but I think the amount of opportunities are also immense and, and getting larger and larger and larger. I mean, as in the past, you had to be a part of like ABC Studios in order to have a conversation like this, right? And let's think about culture, right? Even if you are a straight white male living in the Midwest, 20 years ago, culture sucked. It was super conservative culturally. It was really hard to get by. You know, these norms all weighed on us. This cultural freeing of society, right? It doesn't matter who you are. Everyone's benefited from it. I think we live in a world that is more tolerant, more free, flatter. We can connect with communities that share our affinities for better or for worse and it's a much better time to be alive it's 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 so much more enlightening to live in today's world you remember and maybe you're too young for this ashton before these were around people could bullshit all day and feed you face yeah, right, right. Hey. and now it's like you can instantaneously <laughs> yeah. check everything yeah and you know the flattening of culture you know and just the diversity of 
food, of culture, of traditions. It, it makes the world so much more interesting. And I think we're living in the golden era of that. And that everyone everywhere in America is benefiting from that, whether they'd like to admit it or not. I, I agree. I think we have a, a lot to look forward to. Uh, I'm, I'm a natural optimist. And um, e even with the, the AI and automation uh, you know, concerns I have, I see so much promising things coming especially with with regards to more freedom for people right that's another thing you know 50 today actually even 50 percent of the world's authoritarian uh i think that continues to go down um you know we had the fall of the soviet union about 30 years ago and and we have more uh more freedom around the world uh you know we have to do something about you know, ensuring that we that we keep it which uh you know isn't we can't take that for granted either but i think we have promising days ahead as well yeah, you know, the plural, just just the open source nature. If you live in Middle America and and want to practice religion and want to be, you know, a cultural conservative, by all means, please do so. Okay, if you want to live on the, you know, the bullshit coast like we do, and you know, eat avocado toast mm -hmm. and you know, go to yoga, that's America. Mm -hmm. There's a space for everybody, and I think that that's the best part of this country. We have everything. You could be a burnout surfer in Hawaii, or you could be a brutal workaholic on Madison Avenue in New York. And I think that, you know, we tend to underestimate the blessing that we have being born in this country mm -hmm. and just the enormous amount of opportunity that we have at our fingertips. And this is the capital of technology and forever will be. So I think the future is very bright. In that Amen to that. Regard. Well, David, thanks so much for being with me. Appreciate it. That's an amazing discussion. Thank you. Of course. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks for listening and we will be back next week. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.